Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultraspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. I tell you what, I have gone to great length to download all of the videos that I watch online. When I come across something on YouTube or when I come across something on Vimeo, wherever it is, I always try and make a habit of making a local copy of that file. And that has served me well over the years because I never have that moment where I'm trying to find a particular video that I've stumbled across in the Internet. Um, I just go to the folder where I've organized it and I play it. But recently I've come into a problem. And that problem is that YouTube is trying to make it more difficult to download videos off of YouTube. And so I typically use YouTube DL and more and more over the past, I'd say, I don't know, maybe three to five months. Now I'm getting errors that the video is unavailable. Doesn't really give any reason as to why. And I'm noticing that a lot of them are the ones that are put out by larger organizations. And so if they have their content published on YouTube and I want to just get a local copy for myself and not because I have any malice, it's just because I want to be able to watch it on any one of my TVs. Um, and so I have, I've come across an interesting little, uh, little trick, and that is to use the website invideo.us. Now, if you're not familiar with what InVideo is, it's an alternative to watch YouTube videos without all of the ads and crap that YouTube's website brings with their videos. Now, I'm not sure how long the site is going to stay up because obviously I would imagine it's probably somewhat of a target or will be somewhat of a target for YouTube or for um, Google. But you take your generic YouTube URL and you take the last part after the youtube.com slash and replace the youtube.com with the URL invidio.us, invidio.us, and then leave everything after the slash just the way it is. And if you're watching it inside of a web browser, what you're going to see is you'll be redirected to invideo.us website where you're not going to have any of those ads and unnecessary crap from YouTube. Now, from a YouTube DL standpoint, what is particularly advantageous is when you run YouTube DL, even the videos that were previously showing up as unavailable um, by using YouTube DL and then the YouTube link. If I change the domain from youtube.com to nvideo.us, then it works just fine. And so if you're like me and want copies of local media and like to be able to preserve them so that the, the people at Google don't get to decide what content you have access to and what contact you don't have access to, check out invideo.us. Also, I'm seeing a lot of people share links with InVideo uh, just to watch them in a web browser because it is nice to have a place to watch videos of the same content that's available on YouTube without having to worry about all the tracking stuff. So that's our tip and trick for this week. Getting into the news, Microsoft has announced a $100,000 reward if you can hack their custom Linux OS. Now, Microsoft has announced a three-month challenge in which they are inviting hackers 
to take on Azure Sphere OS. Now, that is their custom Linux OS. Microsoft is offering up to $100,000 to hackers if they're able to break the security of the Microsoft custom Linux OS. Azure Sphere OS is a compact and custom version of Linux that was specifically designed to run on the IoT platform. This OS helps uh, to run apps and services isolated and sandbox for security purposes. Now, people like myself have been very skeptical and very reserved about Microsoft's entrance into the Linux community. And that's, of course, partially based on their turbulent history of advocating that Linux is nothing more than a virus. But the other part of that is, if you're Microsoft and you're sitting down and you're trying to make a decision on what distribution you're going to run Azure on, and you have choices available to you like Red Hat, from a $34 billion company, the largest open source company in U.S. history, largest open source company in the world. Your choice between Red Hat, your choice between Ubuntu, which is unquestionably the most popular distribution of Linux in the entire world, or even something like OpenSUSE. Maybe you're looking for something that's more on the corporate end, but doesn't have as much of their own corporate interests like Red Hat. You could choose baby Red Hat and go with OpenSUSE. They don't do any of that. Right. They start by basing off of Ubuntu. And of course, they continue to advance that ecosystem so much so that it meets their end, end goal. But then they arrive at a point where they say to themselves, we are so big, we are such a large company that it really makes sense for us to have a bigger hand in the decisions that are being made about this Linux distribution thing. And so if we're going to rebase onto Linux. We want to control the Linux that we're basing onto. And I guess where I get where I where I arrive to with that is I understand that from a company perspective. I think that probably makes some sense that Microsoft would eventually have their own Linux distribution. I think what bothers me is the fact that it's happening so soon. And I, I get that there's an argument to be made. Hey, listen, if you're going to invest all of this development infrastructure and design and this is what you're basing your company on obviously you might want to own the product that's underneath but i think that circumvents the very thing that makes open source great and i think it's it circumvents the very thing that microsoft has said that it loves linux right not we love what linux was able to accomplish so we want to reinvent the wheel under our wheelhouse because we have a not invented here syndrome they they don't approach it like a community project. It doesn't seem like this is being approached like a community project. Why not take $100,000 and offer it towards the bug bounty or the fix of some existing Linux distribution? What bounty might I be talking about? How about, how about Ubuntu bug 1878115? And you can read more at Launchpad. I'll have it linked in the show notes. But essentially, the, 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 the skinny on it is that the server installer and perhaps other installers log Lux passwords used on a production system. This is on 2004. So if you installed 2004, if you downloaded the ISO and you went to install it and you decided you wanted encryption on your hard drive because you wanted to be secure. So you chose the Lux option. You typed in your super secret, very complex passphrase. You clicked OK and you restarted that machine. Somebody else logs into that machine after it's been decrypted and they look at var log installer, they're going to see the, the Lux password that you chose. Obviously a pretty big bug. Obviously something that demanded a lot of attention. Now, to Canonical's credit, to Ubuntu's credit, and to the community's credit, 14 hours after this is released, it is solved. It is resolved. It took 14 hours from the time that somebody noticed this and filed a bug report till the time that people 
said, looked at it and went, yep, affects more than one system. Yep, it's critical. Yep, needs to be fixed. Here's the fix. Now we're done. And it happened in 14 hours because there are that many eyes on the code and because developers are that involved in the system. And frankly, the security of the most popular Linux distribution on the planet takes some precedent. When it comes out that the encryption scheme used for full disk encryption, something I have advocated for since day one of this program that you do, when it comes out that there is a, a pretty major security flaw there, it attracts the right attention at the right amount of time. And 14 hours later, this very critical bug is closed. But I want to ask you, if Microsoft puts the minimal effort into supporting the existing ecosystem, and then when they have the opportunity to drop some real money, they drop it on their own project, does it not kind of start to paint the picture that Microsoft is exactly what myself and others like me have said this is, which is Microsoft is in the game for their own skin. And a lot of people are going to praise Microsoft for this. You're going to see a live, you know, the internet, social media, a lot of people are praising Microsoft for the decision to drop 100K. But let me tell you something. I'm going to ask you to remain skeptical. I'm going to ask you to remain critical because I want you to look at what's really going on here. $100,000 in the grand scheme of things is really not that much money when you're talking about software development at this scale, okay? I've worked on infinitely smaller software development projects uh, that have exceeded $250,000, $300,000, and that's that's one. That's in a small community in, in Grand Forks of 50,000 people. Can you imagine what it would be to build a Linux distribution for a company like Microsoft and then do the security audit. Microsoft barely raises a finger and their shadow blocks out the sun for a whole host of communities and individual Linux distros. You know what the programs FFmpeg, Chrome, Firefox, AvidMux, CadenLive, OpenVPN, C-File, OpenPGP, we'll throw Lux in there. You know what those all have in common? They're all infinitely better than their proprietary alternatives. And it is one of the main reasons that Linux has succeeded the way that it has, because our way of doing things is better than the way of hiring a development team, sticking them with a the task list and seeing how fast they can chug through it. But I'm going to call on everybody in the community to spend your time finding bugs and patching codes on those projects, the projects that are for the community and exist out there for everyone and not Microsoft's pet project just because they can raise their finger and say, hey, here's $100,000, everybody jump. Let Microsoft figure out how to make their own distro. And if they don't want to contribute to a project that already exists, they can let them fund it their own way. 855-450, no, it's 855-450-6624, the email. Live at AskNoahShow.com. Jeffrey joins us from Grand Forks. Hey, Jeffrey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. It's good to talk to you again. Same. So I was looking for a uh, uh, some advice on a, a video camera and a gimbal system. I want to start taking some, some video. And maybe I don't even need the gimbal system, but uh, just wanted to give your, get your thoughts on the, the question. Sure. What kind of video are you looking to shoot? Well, I'm part of a local club, and, and I want to take some, some video of club outings so that I can kind of put that up on our website for promotional uh, purposes and stuff. So uh, there's going to be, like, some movement and some action and a little bit of action, so I thought maybe the gimbal system might be of value, but I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, so I, I guess we'll start with this. If you're looking for, there, there are two components. There's obviously the gimbal portion of it, um, and then there's the camera portion of it. Um, if you're looking for just a really solid, generic cam, uh, video camera, um, I always recommend starting with Sony Handycams, um, like the HDR the CX405. Uh, my buddy Chase Nunez uses that to shoot his pinball tournaments. Um, and what he's found is for 200 bucks, they deliver a stellar 1080p picture. And the, the, the image quality that is inside of Sony's cameras are just absolutely fantastic. If you want to step up the picture game a little bit and you want it to look a, a, little, uh, a, a little sweeter, I would look at the Panasonic G4. And the Panasonic G4 is actually a, a DSLR, but it was a DSLR specifically designed for, excuse me, the GH4, is specifically designed for shooting video. And I believe the GH5 is out, or the GH6 is out, and uh, GH5 is out. And so the you can pick up the GH4 for pretty inexpensively on, on eBay or some other secondhand sites. Now it's going to cost three, three, four times more than the than the Sony Handycam, and you have to buy a lens on top of that. What you're getting though out of that, one is you're going from 1080p to 4K, so there's that. The other thing is the overall image sensor inside of the inside of that Panasonic is just a really, really solid uh, image sensor, and so it delivers a really, really high end picture. And there's actually a lot of professionals that are using that particular camera um, for shooting documentaries and such. Um, if you if you do go the route of DSLR or the Sony Handycam, the uh, if is audio something that you're considering? Is it something that you know? Is it just you need to be able to capture the moment, or is it is there going to be dialogue that you want to be able to to save? Uh, yeah, maybe some dialogue, but I could always buy an external mic for that. Um, yes, I'm really more concerned about the you know the movement and the action going about, and and then I, I thought I could score it to music later on. So. Yeah, absolutely. So there's the 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 go-to in the industry for the a, a gimbal system. They're actually not even really a gimbal system. Um it's uh it's called the Steadicam. And this is what's used on 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 major productions when they're shooting a documentary and they're walking around if you ever wonder how they're holding that camera. That's what they're using. Um and a, a real uh from the company Steadicam is fairly expensive. They cost um, somewhere in the neighborhood of a few thousand dollars. And so unless you're doing it professionally, obviously it's not an option. Now, the good news is because the device has been around for so long, if you type in Steadicam into, into Amazon, you'll find a number of essentially cheap knockoffs. One that I've, I've personally used is the uh, Sweet Photo S40, and it cost about $49. Um, and essentially it's, it's a tripod that you hold with your hand with some weights at the bottom of it. And I found that to be very effective. Now, before I had that full disclosure, I actually built one out of galvanized pipe. You can you can take a, a piece of galvanized pipe and you can add a T onto it so you have a handle. And then you can take some weights that are typically used for bench pressing. And for uh, at the time that I did this, obviously, you couldn't buy these things for $50 on Amazon. But um, And you can make a poor man's version of, of a Steadicam for about $100. And, of course, again, now you can buy a poor man's version of, of a Steadicam for 50 bucks on on Amazon. Here's another option though for you. There is another device called the DJI Osmo. 
And I have seen this in action, and it's a pretty sweet device. And essentially what it does is it banks on the fact that your camera, act- or the, excuse me, your phone actually has a really good quality camera built inside of it. And what this does is it adds the ability for you to do a very smooth pan, a very smooth tilt, a very, you know, um, you have control buttons, essentially almost like a joystick that you can make the phone tilt and such. And then it has a gimbal system inside of it to stabilize um, the phone. So if you have a later generation, like a Samsung S10, or if you have an iPhone 10, um, those have such high quality uh, cameras in it to begin with, you're probably your best money would be spent on on just a handheld gimbal to, to, to utilize that camera functionality. And then they also have some software that will allow you to do YouTube live and so on and so forth, if that's something you're interested in. Um, but those would be my choices. My choices, and I'll have links for you for all the stuff in the show notes. For camera, I would go with the Sony Handycam unless you want to spend a little more money, um, in which case I go with the Panasonic. And then if you're looking for just a regular Steadicam, I'd go with the S40 handheld stabilizer. And uh, if you want something totally off the box, then I would take a look at that DJI Osmo. Awesome. Thank you very much. I got one more quick question if you have time. Yeah, you bet. Um, last week you had you were talking about uh, um, uh, kind of a, a light prepping subject. You kind of you briefly touched on it, and at the time you were talking about communication. Is there an online source that you trust about uh, preparedness and, yeah, I guess, prepping for lack of a better term, uh, you know, with this recent COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I, I think a lot of people would be interested in learning how to better prepare for, for something similar to this in the future. Sure, sure. So it's it's kind of a little off topic, but it is something I'm interested in. I um, I, I tend to divide into three categories. And the first is the most likely thing to hit me, which is I'm going to just be inconvenienced. And this has actually happened. In fact, it probably has happened to a number of us. I'll be staying at a hotel or I will be um, I'll, I'll be out somewhere and something happens where I am prevented from leaving or going anywhere, accessing my vehicle or anything that I own for a prolonged for an extended period of time. The last time it happened to me, it was uh, within a year ago. I was out at a client in Wisconsin and I was staying at a hotel and I had brought my family with me, as I sometimes do. And the fire alarm went off in the hotel and the kids and my wife were down in the pool swimming. And so I wasn't, you know, alarmed or scared or anything like that. But when we got down outside of the, the hotel, um, here's my wife and kids in their bathing suits, no towels. And this is, you know, Wisconsin in the middle of March. It's cold and nobody is allowed to go back in the hotel for 45 minutes while the fire, while we wait for the fire department to come and walk around. Right. Simply having simply having a my my car keys, my my uh, my my wallet, uh, my cell phone um, I'm able to go to a restaurant and 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 we can sit down there and eat or we can get in the car and just drive around. And there's I would have had a ton of options, but I didn't think to have those things ready. And so um, I have started to get into the habit of there are certain there are certain things like my car keys, my cell phone, my wallet, my my keys, my gun, those kinds of things all stay in one area. And I just take those things everywhere I go or have them immediately available to take in case something unexpected comes up. And then from there on, I try to divide out, you know, if I had to leave my house for an extended period of time, I'd want my social security card and, and passport and so on and so forth. And I divide those out into kits and it's kind of a long way to answer your question, but where I have taken this information from or where I've accumulated it from is actually Reddit, um, has a really good, uh, 
encouraging support community for people who want to be prepared. Because the problem is when you get into preparation-specific sites or preparation-specific forms, oftentimes what you'll find is that people kind of get carried away and they take it a little too far. And what I found is on Reddit, when somebody takes it a little too far, somebody else will come back and say, well, what exactly is your threat vector? What are you trying to prevent? And then you kind of look at it through the, through the, through the lens of common sense. Okay, excellent. I'll check that out. Awesome. Thanks for the call. Yep, thank you. Bye. 855 450 Noah. That's 1 855 450 The email live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you make your voice heard and become part of the program. Corey calls from Texas. Hey, Corey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. <laughs> hey, Noah. Um, I have one of the type of a doozy for you. I got a funeral home who wants to be doing webcasting because of the virus and all that. They, I have all the equipment except for the endpoints. I've been all over the place, and my last one did not work. Would Zoom or one of the other software vendors be my better, I better choices? Is is because all I have to do is make. I can get the OBS to work and the camera to work, but I can't get the endpoints. Mm. I thought you would know. Yeah, so what you're looking for, Corey, is you want to have a CDN in between OBS and your endpoints. And the reason that you want that is a couple of reasons. First off, you don't want every person that's trying to pull the stream down to pull that through your bandwidth because then your upload bandwidth would have to be able to accommodate that. Most people, certainly most uh, churches, are not going to have the kind of bandwidth plan inside of their church to support that. The second thing that you want is you want the ability to push transcoded streams to various sources simultaneously. And so what I mean by that is you, uh, Facebook, for example, is going to have their own set of requirements on what they accept for a stream and what they want to see. Twitch is going to have their own set of requirements, Vimeo, so on and so forth. And so what you can do is use something like Scale Engine that has the ability to push publish to those individual services. And then you would send your stream to Scale Engine. Scale Engine will then send to Facebook, Twitch, uh, YouTube, so on and so forth. There are a number of competitors. I, I, I personally prefer Scale Engine because I think that their infrastructure works a little bit better and I find their control panel a little easier to use. But there's also Streamlabs is a really popular one. Uh, Restream.io or Restreamio is a popular one. So I would check those. Yeah. yeah, I would check those out. And if you and if you have any trouble, then I'd give me a call back. All right. Uh, my second question was, do you know any open source there's tabletop software i mean the guy's been using uh fancy grounds but lately they're they're upgrading and their tos has updated and we're like we're not liking it that much so we thought isn't there an open source variant and so we can continue our dnd session you know, I, I'm not much of a D&D player, so unfortunately I don't have the answer for you, but uh, now that we have asked the question on the air, inevitably we will get some people that will email in, and so when that answer comes to us, I will certainly release it. All right. Thanks for the call. Thanks. 855-450-NOAH, uh, that's 855-450-6624, the email, 
live at asknoahshow.com. That is the way to make your voice heard and become a part of the program. Our next guest, this was a, this I'm so excited to have uh, to have him on. It's Bill Carter and he is the chief technology officer of the Open Compute Project and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. So I got in contact with Bill because William and I were out at uh, the Southern California Linux Expo last year and we had asked Facebook if we could film their really cool open source rack. And they said, yeah, you can, but we won't explain it. We can't explain it to you on camera. We're prohibited from doing that. And for the, and I had filmed it a few years prior, but we had a technical difficulty. And so we didn't capture the audio and I had been sending emails to Facebook PR and, and marketing and everyone I could think of for the next two years, trying to get them to agree to let us film this rack. And eventually we got there and I, we just couldn't get it to go through. And I said, fine, you explain it to us and then we will explain it on camera and then publish the video. We did. The video went gangbusters. People love it. You should check it out. It's on youtube.com slash Media. And the Open Compute Project reached out and said, hey, that was a really neat video. We have some additional information to share. And so it took a little bit of coordinating of logistics, but we we're able to get Bill Carter, the chief technology officer of the Open Compute Project, and he joins us now on the Ask Noah show. Hey, Bill, welcome into the program. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me again, Noah. I really appreciate it. IX Systems is going through somewhat of a transition with FreeNAST. For those that are and that is totally not the right interview, and so I apologize about that. Uh, we have Bill Carter. Here we go. Here's Bill. Thank you, Noah. Appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. So let's start with this. For somebody who's not familiar with the Open Compute Project, what is OCP? Uh, great question. Um, so, you know, your audience is very familiar with the Linux Foundation, uh, you know, the open source uh, community for, you know, development of, you know, Linux um, software projects. About 10 years ago, the, um, uh, you know, a similar need was, was identified um, to collaborate and share, but but uh, in this case, on uh, hardware platforms that were being deployed into um, the cloud or for cloud uh, operations, and so it was uh, developed or the organize the organization was you know put together by uh, Facebook and and uh, Intel and Rackspace and, and a couple others, and uh, with the idea of being able to share and collaborate on hardware designs. And uh, this is, you know, we're entering our 10th year of, of operation and we have a, you know, pretty big community and we work on, you know, a bunch of different projects under this umbrella of, of uh, shared hardware development. Talk about what that hardware looks like, Bill. There has been a way to build a server and put it into a server rack for some time, and you guys are challenging that norm. You think you have a different way, and it turns out a better way for certain organizations to do that. What is that new model? What is different about OCP from your traditional 19-inch rack um, that, you, that you stack servers in? Yeah, so you have to go back 10 years and, and see where we were at as an industry but, uh, you know, and think back on, you know, back to 2007, 2008, 2009, when, you know, the cloud and the cloud business was really evolving. And, you know, companies like uh, Google and Microsoft and, and Amazon were, you know, building these cloud services. 
And what they found is as they started to build, you know, massive data centers uh, compared to, you know, where they had been and compared to uh, enterprise data centers, they found that, that they could design or they needed equipment that was, you know, very purposely built for their operation. And they didn't need a lot of extra bells and whistles and features that weren't going to be used in a, you know, in a dark, you know, data hall where you had very few people interacting with the actual machine. Everything was done through remote control and, and remote management. Um, and what they cared about is, is, you know, equipment that was, you know, inexpensive, um, so didn't have a bunch of extra parts in it, uh, but also very reliable. And, uh, and most important, that it was extremely efficient, e efficient in executing, you know, the, the workload that it was designed for, um, and also efficient in just its use of energy. Um, and so if you look at the workload itself, it meant that you had to have a very specific balance of, of processing power, you know, core count, memory size, uh, I.O. configuration, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so they found that, it, that they really needed to build these, these purpose-built machines for operation of their cloud. Now, companies, like I mentioned, were doing all of these things, and, and we saw you know, these customized servers kind of evolve you know, back 10-plus years ago. Um, you know, Facebook came along in, in you know, 2000. 10, 2011, and, and they were building their own uh, cloud data center for, for execution of their application and, and realized that their, you know, key success was building that social network. It wasn't in the hardware. And if you could share in that hardware design, it, it would make a lot of sense. You know, they would benefit, others would benefit. Uh, benefit from just the scale of having, you know, many people involved in it, sharing the, the effort, uh, manufacturers sharing in their their um, their manufacturing lines and, and sourcing, and they would focus on the application. And so this purpose-built, cloud-optimized, you know, piece of hardware came about, um, and it was, you know, tremendously efficient, and it was uh, vanity free. It, you know, if there was extra sheet metal, it was tossed out. Um, you know, it was a disaggregated solution where, you know, we had servers that were really good at, you know, managing large memory caches and servers designed for really, really good, fast, efficient, um, you know, web processing and, and uh, CPU execution. Other equipment that was designed very specifically for mass storage, um, and so these were different types of machines than than what had been traditionally, you know, deployed into an enterprise uh, type of data center. They weren't that general purpose machine. These were, you know, very customized machines. And today, those are the machines that are being deployed by you know all of the cloud providers. These are custom built machines. They, they're optimized for, for uh, categories of applications, um, and they do so extremely efficiently. Now, um, you know, in terms of energy efficiency and space utilization, um, we did start with 19-inch rack equipment. You, you mentioned that. 
Um, but there was also some opportunities to uh, optimize the actual use of space within that that rack. Um, and if you if you're familiar with a, a 19 inch EIA rack standard, it actually sits on a floor tile that's roughly 24 inches wide and and 24 inches deep. And these are the tiles that go into the the floor, the raised floor of the data center. And these racks usually span across you know two tiles deep, so upwards of 48 inches deep, roughly 24 inches wide. The server equipment that goes inside that rack is actually only 17 inches wide. So nominally there was you know seven inches that was uh, underutilized uh, and that was due to the way that these were uh, racked and, and uh, bolted in and allowed some airspace on the sides um, for some older type of, of designs that used um, cross ventilation rather than front to rear ventilation, which we don't do anymore. So, you know, along came Facebook and said, hey, we want to really maximize the utilization of space and volume in our data center. We'll design a new rack. We'll make the IT equipment a full uh, 21 inches wide. It still fits in, in this mechanical rack that's, that fits on a one, one floor tile or one floor tile wide. We're just going to get rid of some of that extra space that's unused. And so that became what we refer to as the open rack standard, or also sometimes referred to as a 21-inch rack. It really speaks to the width of the IT equipment that goes in it. There were some other subtle changes that were designed into that, that physical architecture. Uh, one of those is, um, is the, the, the rack unit itself. Um, if you again, if, if you've ever been into a data center and tried to install uh, a rack mount server um, in between two other pieces of equipment, you'll often find that the it, it's very difficult to shove it into you know the the one U or two U slot, and it's difficult because it physically interferes with the system that's either above or below it, um, and it. it it's just the nature of, of you know tolerances and, and trying to fit um, you know all those electronics into a certain you know spacing um, and so one of the differences that they designed into um, open rack was was actually adding a little bit of space and so um, normally a, a rack unit um, in your EIA 19 inch rack is about 44 millimeters and in an open rack, it's about 48 millimeters. Now that's not a big difference, but it did provide a little more, uh, you know, height for for clearance and, and avoid some interferences, and allowed, you know, 40 millimeter fans to fit into these systems and still have some some space for sheet metal above and below the fan. Little things like that. So it was refinement of um, of, of the mechanical design. There was also some changes in power delivery um, today, or again, going back, you know, years ago, um, we would achieve resiliency uh, or, you know, power failures by adding a second power supply. And so in a, in a 42U rack, uh, and these are your typical racks that roll into a data center, they have 42 spaces or 42 units um, height. 
um, you know, they have two power supplies in every server, and, and sometimes more. Um, you know, because of the fact that one of those, you know, is designed to fail, or at least is a, is there as a backup. Uh, basically, you, you you never use the full power. You only use at most half of the power that you're actually paying for with those two power supplies. And so one of the key features of OpenRack was actually take the power supplies out of the server, put them into a, a separate power shelf, and then feed the 12 volts uh, into all of the IT, IT equipment through some bus bars on the back of the rack. So the equipment plugs in from the front. It uh, mates into a couple of bus bars in the back where it picks up its power. So again, it freed up some space inside. It prevents you from, from buying twice as much power than what you really need. It puts all the power into one, uh, one area, one shelf in the rack. Um, and there's still resiliency uh, in that power shelf in that there's multiple power units um, in there. And, and so there's always a spare. Uh, so if one of those power units do fail, um, there is a, another spare that kicks on and, and provides that, that ride through and that re resiliency. So it was a cost impact. Uh, it certainly played a big role in, in, in efficiency and as well as in um, space utilization. Talk about how you guys achieve the UPS. Um, is that something that you still have to purchase from APC? And if so, then how do we square that? Because APC is expecting, obviously, AC uh, power outlets at the back. So how are we dealing with uninterruptible power supplies? Yeah, so when you have a centralized power shelf, you now have an option to provide local storage in the rack. Um, and so along with this power shelf that's, that's taking in your 110 or, or 240 or 208 or 480 volt uh, three-phase power, which by the way, the beauty about these power shelves is that you can buy a power shelf that's really designed for you know, the, the most optimum power distribution. And in most cases, that's, uh, you know, a, a higher voltage three-phase power. So three, uh, 415 volt three-phase or 480 volt three-phase power input. And it's converted down through these rectifiers and uh, into to 12 volts, and they convert each of the phases separately um, and then uh, do current sharing onto the 12 volt bus bar. But you also have the opportunity to either substitute a, a, a power module and put a, a battery function like a lithium ion battery pack in that, or you add another power shelf that has this battery function built right into it. Um, so the, the beauty about having uh, this built-in battery backup system is that you, you can size the, the, the battery backup capability to the exact needs of that particular rack. So if you have a, uh, a eight kilowatt rack, uh, you can provide eight kilowatts of, of battery capacity uh, in that rack. And it turns out that you know, it, it doesn't take up a lot of room to do that. 
with the lithium ion on battery technology. And of course, when you know the systems are running, it's the the power shelves are, are, are char recharging those batteries and keeping those batteries topped up. The other beauty about having this localized battery backup is that you also know exactly what workloads are running on that rack and you can size the battery uh, capacity for the amount of ride through that you need to provide. So let's say that uh, this particular work workloads, um, you know, you need to be able to ride through until uh, until your your um, on-site diesel generators fire up, um, you know, so it may provide, let's say, two minutes of ride through uh, for that alternative power to come online. Um, in some cases, it may simply provide enough power just to do a graceful shutdown. So it may only need to provide 15 to 20 seconds of, of power. Um, but the point being is that you're you're right sizing this uh, um, alternative UPS uh, capability uh, at the rack. Now the other thing that that this these rack designs and rack architecture provides is is it doesn't actually um, eliminate that the UPS in the data center per se a data center that has uh, their white space powered by a UPS can certainly continue to operate like that. So it just gives a an IT executive uh, and the IT engineering staff an, an, an opportunity and an alternative to that UPS and, and do so with this local uh, battery backup capability. Bill, talk a little bit about how we get servers into these racks. So I think you've done a really excellent job at setting up what sounds like a really great open source rack. But obviously, uh, HP, Lenovo, Dell, these are not companies that make open computing uh, servers. They ha they fit into a 19-inch rack. So what kind of servers does a person need to be able to utilize this, this, uh, this open rack design? Yeah, so, um, so first off, um, you know, you mentioned... Uh, HPE and, and Dell, and just to give a shout out to them, you know, they've been part of, of the Open Compute Project from uh, the, the early conception. And so um, they actually do have have products that, that work, um, and they do have some open source projects, and they are involved in, in a lot of the projects that, that we are involved with and that the community is working on. Um, but back to your question, um, we actually, uh, you know, have a, a really great set of, of large community members today. Um, you know, Facebook, obviously, because they they were one of the founding members uh, members for for uh, Open Open Compute Project. We also have Microsoft involved. We have uh, you know a lot of folks from Google that are involved. We have. Um, you know, people from um, some of the other um, uh, large hyperscale companies in China, um, you know, companies like Alibaba and, and Tencent uh, are, are two that come to mind. Um, and, and they're contributing their designs and not just sharing the design, but they're also setting up the supply chain for their own consumption. And that supply chain then uh, you know, can can service additional customers, and so 
our community then has the opportunity to buy that same hardware directly from these high volume manufacturers that are being you know set up by the these large hyperscale um, cloud providers so we actually have a network of of uh, odms that are building the equipment and they're selling that equipment uh, direct or they're selling it through uh, resellers and through other solution providers um, and so we have uh, probably a, a dozen or more um, ODMs uh, for these servers, and then we those that server or list of servers, um, you know, extends to uh, uh, to our networking gear as well. I understand that a lot of these are open. Uh, that all of these are really are they open design, and so anybody can go to a white label. Um, you know, manufacturer that's manufacturing like switching gear, for example, and um, maybe that's a bad example because I don't know if that's part of the uh, of the of the open compute design. But they can go to the to the places that are making these things. They can get the schematics and the design, and if they wanted to, they could hire these companies to build it for them, or they could build them, them themselves because all of the specifications are open and, and available. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, and and uh, and so you could certainly you know go create a second source for one of these designs, um, but what we find is that companies, uh, including other ODMs, actually um, like to evolve the design, and so they take a good design and they they use that as the basis for their next generation, and so we we continually improve because we're we're sharing this this tribal knowledge from generation to generation. Um, and by the way, you mentioned switchgear. A tremendous number of uh, contributions have been around uh, switchgear. So again, we have a, a a great portfolio of designs and uh, and products. And and by the way, all of these products are we we keep a list of those products um, on our marketplace. So if you go to the OCP uh, portal, you can. Um, you can quickly find, you know, who's making those products and, and what's available. Outstanding. Let's talk a little bit about your summit. So this occurs every year. Um, I believe originally it uh, it was happening around the same time as scale. In fact, if memory serves, it was right before scale uh, in the past and then um, like maybe a week before. Uh, and so you guys have an opportunity to demonstrate some of these things. And so if, if Somebody is hearing this and going, man, that rack sounds really awesome, but I'd like to see it in person. You guys roll all of these things out and have some demonstrations and have some experts there for people to ask questions and get involved um, with OCP. Talk about that summit and uh, and what it's going to look like this year, uh, given the the obvious health crisis that has uh, transpired. Yeah, so every year uh, we put on a summit. It's held in the Bay Area and San Jose Convention Center. Uh, it's usually the first week of March, and uh, due to the outbreak of the uh, COVID-19 virus, we had to make a, a difficult decision to um, to switch from a in-person summit uh, to a virtual summit. Now, the summit um, that was planned to to run in in March, we had uh, uh, I think we had about 4,000 people signed up to attend. We had, uh, you know, probably close to 100 different companies that were sponsoring the event. 
um, we have in conjunction with with a, an expo hall where you get a chance to go in and 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 talk to the, this this group of service providers and and ODMs uh, that are they're building this hardware. We also held um, a set of engineering workshops. We have a list of uh, companies that come give executive talks. We have a really great lineup of keynote speakers. Um, we had to make that decision, unfortunately, a week before uh, we were to hold the event. And so all of the content had been prepared uh, for these workshops, executive talks, and, and keynotes. So what we did is we uh, we, we quickly switched uh, over to planning a virtual summit. And uh, that virtual summit will, will occur here in, in, uh, in May, early May. And all of that content has, is being prepared right now uh, for that virtual summit. So uh, we'll have, uh, I think it's roughly 250 uh, speakers that are going to give their engineering talks. Uh, we have uh, keynotes lined up. Uh, we have a um, executive talks that uh, that are being that have been prepared, and and uh, in many cases we're actually pre-recording the executive talk. Um, but we'll, so we can actually play the executive talk and have the speaker available online, so they'll be able to uh, chat and answer questions and be available um, virtually. Uh, online, uh, which is actually something that you know you wouldn't normally have access to if you're if you go into a keynote or or a speaker, uh, you know, executive session, you may not have a chance to ask ask a question. But in this case, we're we're going to have a lot more opportunity to interact, and so all of that is is occurring here in in early May, and and uh, it's free. Anybody can sign up and and uh, and attend. Um, it will be three days long. Um, the last day is uh, is a future technology symposium. Again, another aspect of this summit is that we're we're reaching out to universities and and looking at the research that they're doing that's appropriate for um, the cloud industry and looking at at hardware breakthrough. Uh, and so we had uh, I think we had 39 abstracts that were submitted. Um, we chose the top uh, 13 or 14 of those abstracts and um, we'll, we'll be presenting those abstracts back out to everyone uh, on Friday the 15th at the Future Technology Symposium. Bill, I want to ask you a little bit about the construction of the server. So this is not really the same as your traditional server in which uh, you might have a 2U chassis and inside of the 2U chassis of a processor and some storage and some memory. Um, and uh, if you want to modify any of those components or you want to change any of them out, you have to take it out of the rack. You have to take the top off. You have to get some screwdrivers out. You have to take off some screws, take some brackets out, and then you can get to the parts. You put the new parts in, you assemble everything back together. Then you put the, the, all of that back in the chassis and put the cover on the chassis and put that back in the rack. Um, the open compute project has a slightly different way of actually manufacturing the, I guess you wouldn't even call it necessarily the server because really you're manufacturing the rack at that point um, and also a different way to maintain it. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it is, it is a, a little different approach. Again, it was focused on efficiency 
and scale. So keep in mind that you know a large data center operator you know may replace uh, as as many a, as a quarter of a million pieces of equipment each year, and so they needed to have a way in which you could quickly decommission that hardware and then commission new hardware. And so if you're if you're screwing everything in and and screwing a rail kit on and then putting the rail kit in you know in inside the rack and then sticking this equipment onto that rail kit and then walking around to the back and connecting up power cables and so on and so forth, you know we were talking about you know hours and hours to you know to build out and deploy a rack in your data center and, and it just doesn't scale. So from the very beginning, you know, one of the one of several tenets that we embraced is is designing for scale and designing for efficiency. And so we don't use the traditional rail kit. I mean, the the the, the side of the rack has uh, you know snap-in features that that hold the equipment. Uh, the equipment slides in on a shelf. It it's plugged directly into a blind mate power connector in the back. I mean, that's the only thing in the back, so you never have to go into the back of the of the rack to connect anything. Um, the the power shelf it, itself is is you know has a big uh, large um, high current cable that plugs into the data center. Um, and obviously, if you had some network e equipment, you would then connect up your network into uh, the top of rack switch. But that's the extent of the connection from the rack to the data center. The equipment itself is is it's a vanity-free design, so we we encourage uh, toolless uh, designs, you know, plastics that snap together, um, you know, uh, all front access. Uh, we don't have to wrap the equipment in uh, in completely in, in sheet metal because again we have limited access, you know, to this equipment, um, and so all the equipment slides in from the front, and they have real simple locking mechanisms. That hold that equipment in place. Um, we have some uh, mezzanines or I/O modules that that the community has has designed. In fact, we just released last year the third generation of a mezzanine card, and that generation again quickly plugs in from the front. So, let's say you want to add 40 gig Ethernet connectivity, you know, there's a half a dozen companies that are building cards. These cards are, you know, offer that 40 gig connectivity, and they plug directly into the front of these these servers that that themselves plug into the front of the rack. So again, everything was designed for uh, for efficiency and for scale. Bill Carter, he is the chief technology officer of the Open Compute Project. You can learn more at opencompute.org. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the program and explain all of this and chat with us. We really appreciate it. We'll look forward to getting you back on the program real soon. Thank you very much, Noah. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that the summit, the virtual summit, it's May 13th and, and 14th and 15th. So I would encourage everybody to, um, you know, to, to come attend that. We'll have links for you in the show notes. We got about a minute left to bit. You're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Good evening. Hey, go straight to your question. We were a little short on time. Yeah, I noticed. So, since we were talking about open source hardware, I thought I'd give a quick shout out to a project that's making 
heavy hardware. The project is called Open Source Ecology, and they're making industrial open source industrial equipment. That's awesome. I, uh, if you would, if you could PM me a link, and I will include it in the show notes. People can learn more. Um, because this kind of thing is absolutely necessary. It's great to get the software side open source. I think it's even better when we can get the hardware side. So I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Hey, the music means we're out of time. You can, of course, catch more by following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. You can get the latest up to date. Also, please, 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 if you have some extra time and want to volunteer for self, send an email to volunteers at mindripmedia.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>